Charles Spurgeon said, the mind can descend far lower than the body, for in it there are bottomless pits. The flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. From Spurgeon's sermon titled Honey in the Mouth, from the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, volume 37, page 485. The psalmist says in Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say, I have prevailed against him, lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Suffering is a constant theme in the Bible, and it is a constant theme in the Christian's Life. Whether you're living now in 2023 in New York City or somewhere else in the world, whether you're living in a village in Africa or a city in Europe, whether you're living in the jungles of South America, if you are a Christian, you have experienced suffering, and suffering is somewhat common, commonplace for you. This is true not only of our current era, but is also true throughout history. The history of Christianity has been marked by suffering and the suffering of the Lord's people. So much so that when a person comes to faith in Christ, they can expect that their life will get harder than it was before. Their life will become more difficult. They will have more suffering than before they became a Christian. And so when I was considering what topics should be part of this summer series, Basics for Believers, I was talking to John Benzinger a couple months ago, maybe two, three months ago. He said, you need to teach your people about suffering. And I said, well, I agree with that, but I'm not sure where that fits in the schedule. And I thought, well, we'll do a lesson on it in this summer series before possibly doing a longer sermon series on Sundays. Tonight's message about suffering is divided into two major points, and those two major points are theology of suffering and comfort from God. Most of the message will be made up of the portion titled Theology of Suffering, broken down into larger uh, subheadings such as practical matters, key, key concepts, and biblical texts. So without further ado, let's get going, talking about practical matters related to a theology of suffering. First off, let's be clear. Christians are not to be masochists. If you don't know what that means, I've defined it for you. That is a person who is gratified by pain or degradation. 
A person who is gratified by pain or degradation. It's a person who says, yes, please hurt me. I like pain. I like suffering. It makes me feel good in some perverted way to feel bad. Christians are not to be this way. They're not to pursue this type of life. Christians do not seek suffering for suffering's sake. Please note, though, there's a very real difference between running into a burning building to save children who are locked inside and running into a burning building to die looking like a hero. These are two very different things. You must remember that it is not unholy for a Christian to avoid suffering. For example, you see a bus driving right at you. It is not only not wrong to step out of the way of the bus, but you have a spiritual obligation to step out of the way of the bus to avoid getting squashed like a bug. It is not unholy to take ibuprofen for your headache or to drink water for your thirst. These things are not bad, but in fact, they've been given to us for our good. I need to address this up front because, well, some modern Christians are like this. They're not very fun to be around and certainly no fun to take on vacation with you. But also, I used to know a lot of these people about five years ago, so that's... uh, The ancient church developed a problem in this area. They were embracing asceticism. Asceticism is the idea that all pleasure is bad, and they promoted suffering for suffering's sake. As a consequence of this, monasticism developed. This also points back to to further or older ideas. Uh, I believe it was Platonic thought. Is that right? My king's people. Is it Plat- yeah, it, it would. Yeah, it would be Platonic thought. I get Aristotle and Plato mixed up, so I have to pause and think, using my memory aids with the hand up and the hand down. And Aristotle pointed down, which has to do with materialism and realism. And then Plato pointed up, which has to do with the ethereal and non-real. And as a result, he was idealist. And Yeah. I just explained my memory aid, though, with the hands up and down and stuff. And then I remember that Aristotle points down instead of pointing to the air. So, for what it's worth, um, the ancient church developed a problem in this area by embracing asceticism, which largely was due to Platonic thought that the physical is bad and the the ideas, the things which are idealistic or non-real are good. Um, So then they they come out of that idea, or they come out from, from that tradition into Augustinianism, and next thing you know, you have monasticism developing with monks living lives of, quote, self-denial and practicing self-flagellation. Do you know what self-flagellation is? It's literally whips that you would beat yourself with. They practice very rigorous fasting, like the type of fasting where they might starve to death in order to, quote, beat their body into subjection. By the way, these couple of points I've made. These are not what Paul had in mind when he talks about beating your body into subjection. Paul is not doing that, and we know that, because he gives a full green light to all sorts of matters of Christian liberty. He he doesn't say, hey, you would be much more holy if you would just not eat, or you would be more holy if you just move to the desert where you can have a little cup of water every two days. 
So please, do not be confused. Be clear about this point up front. Christians are not to be masochists. They're not to be pursuing suffering for suffering's sake. They're not to be pursuing suffering to make viral videos for sharing on their social media accounts. To be like, hey, look, here's a video of me getting beat up. I know someone like that, too. It's easy to get into trouble. It's easy to make people mad. It's easy to get arrested if you wanted to. It's easy to provoke the authorities. Christians are not to do that. They're not supposed to be that way. So that's this one primary practical matter up front. Let's move into key concepts. Key concepts. Number one, compatibilism. You need to know this term, compatibilism. It's the idea that the sovereignty of God and human responsibility coincide together in a compatible way. For example, God ordained your suffering, yet the perpetrator is responsible for their wrongdoing. God ordained your suffering, but the perpetrator is responsible for their actions. Remember the words from the story of Joseph, I believe it's in Genesis 50. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. As much as I like... um, I don't know if they, I think they wrote the song. Shane and Shane wrote a song about, um, oh, I can't remember how it goes, but it, it's, yeah. It's, it has a line in it that says, you, um, what you, you meant for evil, God, you, you turn it for our good, you turn it for our good and for your glory. Um, the problem with that song is it says, you turn it for our good. That's not what the scripture says. The scripture says, you meant it for our good. So it's not that God somehow takes a bad thing and twists it into good, but rather it's that God straight up takes that which is evil, ordains it, and also has this dual purpose, which is good, even though there's also this evil happening. So this is what we call compatibilism. Which, by the way, is reformed. This is a, this is a full-throated, five-point Calvinist-type reformed doctrine. The second concept to know about is free will. The free will answer to the problem of evil is, well, why is there evil? Oh, because there's free will. If you encounter someone answering that question, why is there evil? And they say, well, because there's free will. Well, congratulations, you have just met and found a Arminian. Because that's the answer. And they're not usually talking about Adam's free will either. In, in a technical sense, you could say, yes, there is evil because of Adam's free will. But Adam was the last person that ever had a free will. Since Adam, all humans have had a tainted will. They've had a corrupted will that is inclined towards sin, like a broken shopping cart that is, is, goes off to the left. The hyper-Calvinist answers this question, why is there evil, by simply saying, well, God ordained it. They would not assert man's responsibility. They would not teach that man has agency. They would either ignore that or they would say, well, you couldn't do anything about it. They would also be very uncomfortable with the idea of petitioning God or pleading with God or, or begging God, God, please deliver me from this. They will say, no, you just have to to deal with it. You just have to sit and shut up and say, the Lord wills it. They would not want you to seek to change a bad circumstance. They would say, no, you just have to suffer. 
Now, there are, in fact, many people that are hyper-Calvinists that would not call themselves hyper-Calvinists. And I got that point from Peter Masters, the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Much of American evangelicalism that would fall under the Reformed banner is, in fact, very strongly leaning towards hyper-Calvinism. The fourth term that you need to know about is the word theodicy. Theodicy. Theodicy is the category of philosophy focused on these questions which we've just talked about. Addressing the issue of the existence of evil and the goodness of God, or the problem of evil with this question. If God is good and sovereign, why is there evil? Or a line which I think came from like Batman or Superman or something, which is not actually theirs, they just stole it from someone else. If God is all-powerful, he cannot be all-good. If he is all-good, he cannot be all-powerful. Which, by the way, ascribing that quote to like Batman is sort of like saying, just do it, came from Andrew Carrillo. Like, no, that's actually a Nike slogan, and he might say it, but it's... <laughs> so these are four basic concepts that I would like you to be aware of. We're going to keep moving because there's plenty more to talk about, and we have a difficult time keeping it under an hour and a half. The Bible is a book full of meta-narratives, full of large stories, big themes that ride from Genesis to Revelation. One of the great meta-narratives of Scripture is suffering. And I believe that this is actually the original. This is the first one given, is this theme of suffering. We will talk about that in just a moment. But what we find in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, is that creation is made. God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. God said it was good. God made all things and said, this is good. So there is no evil. There is no suffering. There is nothing bad. There is no darkness at all. There is just pure light. There is God's creation. And then God expands on this and makes all of the things in the heavens and the earth. This creation is good. But then what happens next? Well, in Genesis 3, we see the fall. In the fall, evil has entered the world, which includes sin and death as a consequence of that fall. The world that has then come under the curse of God. And so we read in the book of Genesis that from the fall of man forward, we see sin invading everything and everywhere. And so that becomes the story of the book of Genesis. For example, in Adam and Eve, you see Adam being passive, You see Eve's rebellion. You see both of them with their unbelief, where God has given them his word. He has given them one rule, and they're like, no, I'm going to do my own thing. You see them blaming others, blaming each other, blaming God. Then the next people that the story talks about is Cain killing Abel due to jealousy. After that, we have a brief story about a guy named Lamech. Lamech. He kills a man. He avenges him 77-fold for hurting him. And then he writes a poem to brag about it to his two wives, which seminary jokes are, well, you have the first rap song right here. You have a poem about a man with two women, two like girlfriends, who killed somebody and is now bragging about it in lyrical fashion. 
There's, there's just layer upon layer of evil in this very brief story about this guy named Lamech. And then you see Genesis 6, the wickedness of man is great upon the earth and every imagination of his heart is only evil continually. Then you see Genesis 7, God sends a global flood to destroy the whole world. We could keep going, but tonight's lesson is not a deep dive into the book of Genesis or even an overview of the book of Genesis. We're just talking right now about some biblical texts, with, starting with the Old Testament. After that, we see the next book in the Bible, which is Exodus. You know why it's called Exodus? Because they're exiting Egypt. Why are they in Egypt? Well, because they're slaves. Being a slave is not a pleasant experience. It's not a fun time. In fact, it is suffering. The nation of Israel is enslaved in Egypt, and they have profound suffering. I have a Bible verse somewhere, and I don't know where it is exactly in either my notes or the PowerPoint, but it's, I believe it's Exodus 2.25. It says something along the lines of the Lord saw the groanings of the children of Israel, their cries ascended up to his presence, and the Lord knew. He saw their suffering, and he knew. We could march through the Pentateuch and then through the rest of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then like highlighting each point of suffering along the way, but that would take a very long time. The main one I want to talk about now, next is Job, the book of Job. Hopefully that's the book that pops into your head when you think about the term suffering. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Christianity, the word Job looks like job, J-O-B. But it's a guy's name. And most scholars believe that the book of Job is the oldest book of the Bible, that it was written before Genesis, or that it dates from prior to the time of Moses. The oldest book of the Bible provides the original meta-narrative of the Bible. The story of the Bible is the story of suffering, particularly the righteous man who suffers, which would then be pointing towards Jesus, the Messiah, the truly righteous man who suffers unjustly. And here in my notes, I have the words, I intend to develop this point. Perhaps more than the other Old Testament books. But I didn't. But you know what I did do is I already have the book of Job turned to in my Bible. So we're going to read that and then have a very brief anecdote and then carry on. Job chapter 1 says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters born to him. Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, that's 1,000, 500 female donkeys, and very large households, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. In other words, the wealthiest man in that entire part of the world. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his own appointed day, and would send and invite the other, their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. He, he's offering sacrifices to God just in case his children have sinned. 
Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, by the way, sons of God is an expression or reference to angels and spiritual beings. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, and walking back and forth on it. By the way, it's worth noting that Satan is not omnipresent. Satan is not in all places at all times. He is only in one place at one time. And in the words of John Benzinger, Satan is not in Phoenix, Arizona. Satan is either in Washington, D.C., in the Vatican, or in New York City. And he said at that particular night, he was in this room. We had a very horrible meeting with someone who I believe is demon-possessed. So Satan is going to and fro, walking all over the earth. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Please note, verse 8, the Lord brings up Job's name to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? Verse 10, so Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hand, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Satan is telling God, you need to afflict him, because he is only worshiping you because you've given him all these good things. In other words, Satan is saying that Job is practicing prosperity theology. He's only a Christian because he gets good stuff out of it. Verse 12, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house, and a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then... Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. I wish I could say that the story stops there. It doesn't. It gets worse. The next thing that happens is 
Well, let's keep reading. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth. In other words, after he's finished ruining Job's life, he just goes back to business as usual, doing his same old, same old things. Just another day in the life of the accuser. Verse 3, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, yes, all that this man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of the foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd from which to scrape himself, which he sat in the midst, while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come and to mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept. Each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. There are many things that every good expositor will say about this text. For example, um, the, the only good thing that his friends did was sit there in silence for seven days. And also they'll make some sort of comment about how the one thing that Satan doesn't take away from him that I'm sure he wishes Satan did take away from him was his nagging wife, who is torturing him with these cruel and heartless words. It's hard enough being in a difficult situation, but then being in that horrible situation with someone who is just pouring acid on your wounds who happens to be married to you. So this book of Job will spend the next, what, 30? I mean, there's 38 chapters, I think. No, there's more than that. 42 chapters, so there'll be 39 or 38 40, sorry, I can't count. 40 more chapters of this back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And then, well, you hit chapter 28, which my uncle wrote his dissertation on, which was the premise that chapter 28 is the theological center of the book of Job. Because what happens in chapter 28 is God looks at Job and says, all right, buddy, where were you when I formed the world? Where were you when I was making the dinosaurs. Where were you when I was doing all of these things? And so he's putting Job in his place and basically saying, Job, I'm God and you're not. And it's not your business to know what I'm doing. 
Now, my anecdote that I promised. Um, these, these closing words of chapter 1, verse 20, Job rose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return there. When I was about 11, I think, I went to Montana with my grandfather. Uh, for those, um, I guess, four of you that are my, my grandmother, uh, it was her husband, Papa Tillman. Uh, he's a Swedish guy, so I'm 25% Swede, hence the appearance. And my, my ancestors, they were farmers in Montana. And so um, I was able to go out to see the family farm back when I was like 11, and I went with my grandfather, and we, we went to the farm. The farm has been converted into, well, they still plow in the fields and grow crops, but the farmhouse where my grandfather grew up and my great-grandfather moved the house on horses and wagons from the city 20 miles out to the town and then reset this house up there on the prairie. They've converted that into a bed and breakfast, so we were able to stay in it with my cousins, and it was pretty cool. But my uh, like cousin's cousin, who rents uh, leases the land from my grandfather, took us out into the fields. We were looking for agates. If you know what an agate is, it's a rock that you break it open, and it has like sparkly rocks inside of it. Geodes. They called them agates. I don't know. Look up agate and see if I'm see if they're Montana. Just 50 miles south of Canada. It's very, very far north. Anyway, we're out there, and this, this guy, Ernie, is telling us these stories about our family. Now, he's not like, he, he's, everyone out there is related. He's like a little bit further out related, but he's telling us the story about this time, you know, 50, 60 years ago, where this was long before they had crop insurance. These days, farmers have crop insurance. So if your crops fail, you still get paid and you can pay your bills sort of and carry on. But he said that they'd had a number of years in a row with famine, a number of years in a row with, with no rain, without good crops. And um, my great-grandfather was um, really hoping that this would be the year because they, they couldn't go on like this indefinitely. They're going to declare bankruptcy. They'll lose the farm. They'll be just in bad straits if, if things don't turn around. And so this one particular, this year, uh, there was so much rain and it was coming all at the right time. The crops were growing uh, and it was a bumper crop. It was an amazing yield. The, the wheat was growing in a way that it hadn't grown in years and years. And they realized that this, this harvest of the wheat would be able to pay back all their debt and then some. They would be, they would be set. They would be doing very, very well, uh, assuming all these things. And then a few days before the date of the harvest, a few days before they were going to go out in the fields and harvest the wheat, a horrible hailstorm came and destroyed the entire flock or crop. It, it, it destroyed the entire harvest. And this businessman from New York, this businessman from town, this businessman from back east was visiting with them. And he asked my great-grandfather, how can you experience this? How can you go through this without committing suicide? How can you go through this without killing yourself? In the Great Depression, people are jumping out of these skyscraper windows when they lost everything. You have lost everything here. How can you experience that? 
And I'm told that George Bernard Tillman replied, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I think that that's something that we need to keep in mind. We need to remember in our suffering to praise God. And I think, and I've experienced myself as well, that the Lord wants to bring us to a place of worshiping him in our suffering, to telling him thank you for this horrible thing. And oftentimes he waits until we praise him before he lifts his hand. Nevertheless, let's continue. Let's look at Psalms. I started by reading Psalm 13. There's two categories of psalms related to suffering that I'd like to mention. The first is psalms of lament, and the second is psalms of imprecation or imprecatory psalms. Psalms of lament are psalms that express these lamentations, these words of grief and sorrow before God. So we started by reading Psalm 13. There are plenty more psalms of lament. Uh, Psalm, I'll read a few verses from Psalm 70. Uh, The psalms of lament are, if you're wanting to write them down, they're 3, 5, 6, 7, 10, 13, 17, 22, 25, 26, 28, 31, 38, 51, 54, 55, 56, 57, 59, 61, 63, 64, 69, 70, 71, 73, 77, 86, 88, 102, 109, 120, 130, 140, 141, 2, and 3. Trenton, you got that? Well, there's also communal psalms of lament. Those are 12, 14, 16, 74, 79, 80, 83, 85, 90, 94, 137. So a communal psalm of lament is where we're all lamenting something that we're all going through. So it would use plural words like us and we. The individual psalms of lament are these very personal words speaking as an individual to God. For example, Psalm 69 says, Save me, O God! For the waters have come up to my neck, not to our necks, but to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. These are Psalms of lament. Again, Psalm 3, 5, 6, 7, 10, 13, etc. So you just start reading in Psalm 1 and, and just read a little bit and you will find them if you're not able to get these numbers written down. And then after that, there are the imprecatory psalms. An imprecatory psalm is a psalm where someone, usually the psalmist, is crying out to God for justice or vengeance or saying, God, will you hurt that person for me? Um, So these I've listed are 12, 14, 16, 74, 79, 80, 83, 85, 90, 94, and 137. So let's look at Psalm 74, since I'm closest to that. Oh God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance, which you have redeemed. Oh, sorry, I'm in the communal Psalms of Lament right now. Hence him saying, cast us off forever. Uh, imprecatory psalms. Let's look at Psalm 79. 
O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. Your holy temple they have defiled. They have laid Jerusalem in heaps, the dead bodies of your servants. They have given as food for the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. Their blood they have shed like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to those who are around us. How long, Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. So the psalmist is saying, God, pour out your wrath on these wicked people. If you don't have a category in your mind for that, tonight would be a good night to get a category in your mind for that. The heading above it in my Bible says, a dirge and a prayer for Israel, which has been destroyed by enemies. So again, imprecatory Psalms, Psalm 5, 10, 17, 35, 58, 59, 69, 70, 79, 83, 109, 129, 137, and 140. There's more of all these, but these are just some. Next. Considering the book of Ecclesiastes very briefly, in chapter 1, verse 2, it says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does that mean? That means emptiness. It means striving after wind. Life is like a breath. It's like a vapor. Ecclesiastes 7.14 says, in the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider that God has made the one as well as the other. This book of Ecclesiastes has a very realistic look at life, a very realistic and accurate view of the world in which we live. There are two main perspectives on the book of Ecclesiastes, and I believe that the right approach, the right way to read the book of Ecclesiastes is the way I've described it to you, that it is an accurate telling of how things are rather than a sinful, perverse way of looking at things. No, I just I think that if you read it and you say, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, that that's the right hermeneutical approach to the book of Ecclesiastes. After that, we consider Lamentations. The book of Lamentations is a prophetic lament from Jeremiah, who is known as the weeping prophet. Jeremiah wrote the book of Jeremiah and wrote the book of Lamentations. So here's a few sections from this book. Chapter 1, verse 1, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. That's Jerusalem. How like a widow is she, who was great among the nations. The princess princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. This is a poem that Jeremiah is writing, a lament based on Israel being captured, Jerusalem being conquered, carried off into captivity. Chapter 2, verse 2, the Lord has swallowed up and has not pitied all the dwelling places of Jacob. He has thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. 
He has cut off in fierce anger every horn of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. He has blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire devouring all around. Standing like an enemy, he has bent his bow with his right hand like an adversary. He has slain all who are pleasing to his eye. On the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. Imagine you're in a tent and someone throws gasoline on it and then brings their flamethrower out and just lights it up and you're inside. That's the image that Jeremiah says that God has done against Jacob, which is his reference to Israel. Standing like an enemy, he has bent his bow with his right hand like an adversary. He has slain all who are pleasing to his eye. On the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. Well, I'm like in loop here. The Lord has like an enemy. The Lord was like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He has destroyed her strongholds. And has increased mourning and lamentation in the daughter of Judah. He has done violence to his tabernacle as if it were a garden. He has destroyed his place of assembly. The Lord has caused the appointed feasts and Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion. In his burning indignation, that's wrath, he has spurned the king and the priest. But it gets worse if you thought that was bad. Those slain by the sword are better off than those who die in hunger. For those pine away, stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of the compassionate women. Think about who's the nicest woman that you know. Get her name in your mind. Write it on your piece of paper and then keep reading. The hands of the compassionate woman have cooked their own children. They became food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. This is dark, you want to put a positive spin on this cannibalism and say, oh, well, they cooked their children after the children starved to death. The book of Lamentations is called a lament for a reason. This is dark, dark stuff, and most of us don't even read it, and we don't know what it's about. So you're welcome. Now, that's not all. There is hope. There is, there is a, a, a light This light is found in chapter 3. In the middle of the darkest of all the books of the Bible, there is a beam of light, a ray of hope that shines out, and it looks like this, Lamentations 3, 22 through 24. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. These words of hope come in the middle, in the middle of this book, the chapter before the cannibalism stuff that I just told you about. That should be very instructive for us to recognize that even in the middle of the darkest of all horrible circumstances, there still is hope and there still is the opportunity and yes, even responsibility to lean on the promises of God to cast your hope fully on this, the promises of God. In this case, the faithfulness of God. The mercies which are new every morning. As you continue reading in the Bible, through Lamentations, you find the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, 
Trenton, you want to finish this? Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And, and, and what these prophets are doing, they're all basically doing the same thing. These prophets are, are giving sermons of judgment on a wicked nation, which is Israel, and then also giving sermons of judgment on her even more wicked enemies, some of which the Lord is using to judge them. For example, the book of Habakkuk. In these sermons from these prophets, which are not popular people in their time, these sermons are warnings of wrath and destruction. But there is also this pattern At the end, typically, of each book, there is a hope of restoration and renewal in the age to come under a messianic ruler who will redeem them and restore them. And then the Old Testament ends. And then there's silence. And there's seemingly no rescue, seemingly no deliverance. And 400 years pass. A great war happens in that time of silence. And then we see the New Testament begin. All of this, keep in mind, we're talking about suffering tonight. We're talking about these great difficulties, these times of great darkness. So the New Testament begins with Israel as an occupied nation. Israel is an occupied nation which has been invaded by enemy forces. They've been carried off into exile twice, and now they've some of them have returned, but they are occupied by the Romans. Wouldn't that be nice? You're walking around your town, you're going to the center of your elementary school and where there used to be an American flag, there is a flag from China waving there. And you're like, wow, hmm, this is great. The school security guard that you used to know and his name was Charles, Well, his name's not Charles anymore. He's wearing a different uniform. And, well, he's not from your town. All the law enforcement, all the soldiers, your local armory that was in your hometown, all that stuff has been replaced. Times are not so good. So think of that. Israel is an occupied nation invaded by enemy forces. And in that context, you have this child born of a virgin, descendant of David, raised up, growing up, as a very ordinary young man, truly human. And this one, Jesus, would be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He would be a man who knew suffering He's a man who sees his friends die and he wept. These were not fake tears. Jesus saw his friends betray him and abandon him, even mock him and curse him. And then as he is going to the cross, going to his unjust death, he cries in his cry of desolation, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After him, after Jesus, His apostles would face tremendous persecution. And then these apostles would tell us that suffering and persecution will follow us as well. We read about this 
In the book of Acts, chapter 4, in the middle of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, when thousands upon thousands of Jews are being saved, the religious leaders come to the temple, they come with their temple soldiers and they arrest Peter and John mid-sentence. In the middle of their sermon, while thousands of people are streaming to the mikvahs, to the baptismal pools, Peter and John are hauled off in handcuffs. They're threatened and forbidden from preaching Jesus. And they respond, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak of the things which we have seen and heard. In other words, they're saying respectfully, your honor, no, we will not listen to your orders. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles are arrested again by the high priest, but were rescued by an angel. Then the apostles were re-arrested yet again in verses 23 and 24 in chapter 5. Peter is on trial and the others responded. Peter and the others respond, we must obey God rather than men. So there's tremendous pressure being put on them by the local authorities to be silent, to stop preaching, to stop preaching Christ. They said the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging him on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Suffering continues in chapter 6. The church suffers from division and conflict over the widows who were without food. Chapter 7, one of the deacons who helped resolve that widow situation in chapter 6 is a man named Stephen, one of the deacons appointed to serve, and he preached a powerful sermon which provoked the anger of the authorities. The authorities then hired false accusers to raise charges against him, and so Stephen was arrested and placed on trial. He again preaches a powerful sermon on trial, so powerful that when he got to the point of application in chapter 7, verse 52, the crowd was so angry that they charged him, screaming, and ultimately murdering him by throwing rocks at him, stoning him to death. They interrupted his sermon as well. And they silenced him. They stopped him at his point when he turned the finger and said, this is because of you and your wickedness and you need to repent. That's when they come at him. Chapter 8. One of the men who assisted in the mob killing of Stephen was a man named Saul. He would go house to house arresting Christians, dragging them off to to prison to be tortured or killed to receive the same treatment that Stephen did. Later on in chapter 8, a false convert infiltrates the church. We call him Simon the Sorcerer, and he attempts to become a leader in the church through bribery. Peter confronts him, and he says, May your silver perish with you, which literally rendered means you and your money can go to hell. Yes, these were sharp words. These were words that would not make it past your E-rated, G-rated TV filter. Then we have Acts 9. Saul is converted by Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he is stopped in his tracks as he is on his way to kill Christians. Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So in all of this persecution that's happening against the churches, Jesus takes it personally, and he says, you're you're attacking them, you're attacking the church, you're actually attacking me, the second person of the Trinity. You're attacking the Lord Jesus Christ. You're attacking the one who's seated at the right hand of the Father, and I don't approve of that. 
I don't like that. I take that personally. So Jesus stops him. Skipping ahead to Acts 12, Herod, King Herod kills James, James, the brother of John the Apostle. Remember the sons of thunder. James, the brother of John, James, the brother of John, the author of John, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. James, this one who's killed, is the first apostle to be martyred. Then next, in the book of Acts in chapter 12, Peter is in prison by Herod. So Herod's on a roll. He's feeling pretty good about himself. Hey, I just got James. Let's get another one. So he imprisons Peter with a very clear intent to kill him, just like James. But Peter was rescued by an angel during the church's midnight prayer meeting. You've heard the story of Rhoda, the servant girl. Peter knocks on the door while they're praying for his release Rhoda goes and checks the door, and she's like, oh, Peter, hey, how are you? She's speaking to him through the door, and through the window, or whatever, and then she runs back and tells the group, but leaves him standing outside, this convicted felon who just got let out of jail on a jailbreak by an angel, and he's still standing there, like, in his jail outfit, looking like a runaway, hoping that she'll let him in. And she runs back and tells the people, Peter's here, Peter's here, while they're praying for Peter's release. It's all in Acts 12, you should read it. And they're like, no, he's not. He wouldn't be released while they're praying for him to be released. Yes, there's a great deal of comedy in this whole situation. And to see how little faith these people have. They're literally asking God to do this thing, and then God does the thing, and they say, no, God didn't do that. That didn't happen, you're crazy. And she's like, no, I promise, Peter's here. And then we move on to the more boring part of my little, my notes. Acts 13 through 28. Paul and others are commissioned to take the gospel to the nations. They are sent out by the church at Antioch. They build a team of various people and go on four different voyages that were all extremely dangerous. Remember, they didn't have um, the types of, navigation and lifeboats and coast guard and helicopters and all the kinds of things that you would like if your ship was to sink. So they go on these four different voyages that are extremely dangerous, the last of which was in fact interrupted by a shipwreck. And in their preaching tour, they go through city after city after city. They first enter the synagogues to preach the gospel to the Jews. Then without fail, they are run out of the synagogues, and then they preach to the Gentiles. The Gentiles often respond with repentance and faith, and then churches are established. This is the story of the Philippians, the Thessalonians, the Ephesians, and others. But in Ephesus, a riot broke out due to the preaching of Christ, which impacted the economy for the local silversmiths, or the silver statue makers, who made little idols of the goddess Diana. And because so many people were converting to Christ, people stopped buying their idols. So they got really mad. And these these silversmiths incited a riot in the theater in Ephesus, which still stands today. You can see it. You can go there. You can climb on the steps and look there. And you're like, wow, Paul preached right here. And it's all recorded, I think, in Acts chapter, I want to say 20, but I don't think that's right. It might be 20. Because in Acts 21, Paul is, told, uh, Paul is told with a powerful prophecy that if he goes on his next journey, he will not make it out alive. 
the belt. The guy wraps the belt around Paul's hands and says, this is going to happen to you. You're going to be imprisoned and they're going to kill you if you get on this boat and go. And Paul's like, yep, I'm going. This did not frighten him, but instead motivated him to leverage this opportunity to preach Christ to the most powerful man in the world, the king of the Roman Empire. But in order to make that happen would require being taken to Rome. How is he going to get to Rome? Well, on a, on a prison, prisoner ship. And then in order to speak to the king, the Caesar, the, the, the most powerful man in the world, he's going to get put on trial. And then he'll, he will appeal to Caesar and just keep on appealing and appealing and appealing until he gets to that top, ultimate, high court where then he can talk to Caesar face to face. This is his plan. Sure, it's risky. Sure, it might lead to his death. He doesn't care. This is a man who says, I don't count my life as dear to myself. Also, as a result of these missionary journeys and all these churches planted, we have what we call the New Testament now. First and Second Corinthians. Well, the book of Acts logs all this stuff, and then, then uh, First and Second Corinthians and Romans and uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon. These are the books that Paul wrote as part of his job, as part of what he's doing as the apostle to the Gentiles. And one of the things he says to one of the churches he planted in Philippians 1.29, he says, to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's been given to you as a gift, not just to believe, but to suffer for him. Have you ever thought of suffering as a gift? It is. Now, remember what I said in point number one. We're not not seeking out suffering in a masochistic type way. We're not pursuing suffering by doing stupid things and stepping in front of buses or provoking cops with our evangelism techniques. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Timothy, sorry, 1 Peter 3.13 says, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 18 says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death 
for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sake, that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light momentary affliction is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. The things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You should let that verse, that that section, shape your eschatology and just kick certain options off the table as not even not even tenable. Which leads us naturally into our next point, which is the meta-narrative of the Christian's life, the Christian's lifespan, the Christian's arc. What is the shape of the Christian life? Is it up and to the right? Is it, what are the buildings, bucks, and, uh, and bodies? Is, is it, is it a, a Roman Catholic empire where, hey, we're just getting more and more money and more and more buildings and more and more power? Is it a theology of glory, which is, in fact, a prosperity theology? The basic premise being that if we love and obey God, we will prosper, and God actually owes it to us. If we are suffering, it's because we have sinned or done something wrong. Prosperity theology views suffering in in a similar way to karma. Okay, so why hasn't your city been Christianized yet? Well, it's because you did something wrong. People literally are saying this right now on the internet. John MacArthur wasn't faithful, and this is the reason why California is the way it is. John MacArthur wasn't faithful. This is the reason why there's drug addicts all over L.A., This is prosperity theology, just in a reformed-ish way. They're saying, you did something wrong, therefore you will be punished. Or, let's say, you have cancer. You must be being punished for something you did. These people sound like Job's friends. Job's friends who said, oh, the reason you're suffering? Oh, it's because you're... Because you deserve it. And Job keeps on insisting, well, no, I don't think that's it. I, I, I'm not convinced that that's right. And they're like, nope, it is. Just admit it. Just curse God and die. Prosperity theology would say, well, you don't have enough faith. That's why you have this illness. The antithesis of this theology of glory, this prosperity theology, is a theology of the cross. Theology of the cross is that humans cannot earn righteousness. Humans cannot add to or increase the righteousness of the cross. And that any righteousness that we have, that we have received, comes from outside of us, not from within us. Theology of the cross is basic Christianity. This is basic 
Protestant Reformed gospel. Now let's keep moving. There are challenges or hardships or sufferings that humans experience. There are things that are physical. And when I say physical, I, I mean, I use that, that wording loosely, but just things that you experience that might not necessarily be due to things other people are doing, but just things that you're experiencing in your life, such as addiction or cancer or death or depression or disease or famine or hunger, or illness, or loneliness, or mental illness, or natural disasters such as hurricanes, earthquakes, blizzards, fires, droughts, or persecution, or plagues, or poverty, or war. These are alphabetized, by the way, if you're wondering. But then after these forms of suffering that I've labeled physical, then there's human suffering, also alphabetized, Things that people directly do or cause, such as abandonment, abuse, assault, aggression, anxiety, betrayal, bitterness, cruelty, deceit, drunkenness, division, fear, hatred, hypocrisy, jealousy, loathing, malice, murder, revenge, spite, scorn, terror, torture, violence, and wrath. Types of suffering that we experience. Then a third category that I've listed is spiritual suffering. The first I've listed is demonic. I'm not typically or really ever interested in splitting hairs between demonic possession and demonic oppression, so that's why I just wrote demonic affliction. Because it is certainly true that Christians can be afflicted by the devil, such as the story we've read tonight, Job. It is Satan afflicting him. It is Satan saying, hey, I'm going to do stuff to you. I'm going to make your life real bad. Satan, a messenger of Satan, literally an angel of Satan, is sent to afflict Paul. And Satan afflicts and tempts Jesus. And if Satan himself does this, and his angels do this to these three figures, Job, Paul, and Jesus, what makes you think that just because you're a Christian, you will never encounter anything demonic? I think that that is a bit of foolishness to think that. So there's certainly demonic affliction, which can come up against a believer or an unbeliever. And then the second type of spiritual affliction that I've mentioned here is divine abandonment. Now, when I say divine abandonment, I don't mean that you are actually abandoned by God, but if you are a Christian, you may at times feel that way. There are verses in the Psalms about God hiding his face from us crying out to God and feeling as though there is no answer, feeling as though God is far away. Let me assure you, God has not abandoned you. He will not abandon you. He has promised never to leave you nor forsake you. 
But the, the way in which we know that he has not abandoned you and he will not abandon you is because of stuff from our second major point, comfort from God. But we'll talk about it right now since we're on. We know that we will not experience divine abandonment because Jesus experienced divine abandonment for us. Jesus was forsaken by the Father so that we would not be forsaken. Jesus experienced that so that you and I would never be forsaken by the Father. And then thirdly, we have the third form of spiritual suffering to mention is sin. Both your own sin and others' sin. Now, a great many of the things which I've listed before on the physical suffering and the human suffering, many of those are sins. But we experience spiritual suffering internally as well for sins which may not even be seen outwardly. A lot of the things that I've listed here are seen outwardly. If you had a camera in your house or if your phone, your rear-facing camera was on at all times, it would see these things. But the sin, it might not see. Sins in the heart or sin in other people's hearts that causes you suffering. Now let's speak quickly about comfort from God. Please remember, number one, the Lord's design. The Lord designs that all things work together for good, Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What this verse means is that God has ordained that all of the experiences of the Christian's life are for the end or for the purpose to work together for good in order that you would be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus, for the purpose that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, that Jesus would be exalted, that Jesus would be lifted up, that Jesus would be glorified as the preeminent one. That's the reason for all things that you experience. The glory of Christ, your conformity to his image, and your good. The Lord's design. Secondly, the Lord knows. Exodus 2.25, here it is. Starting verse 23. During those days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because, their slavery, because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God knew the suffering of the Israelites in Egypt and so God knows your suffering. He knows the, the burdens on your heart, the challenges in your life, the difficulties that you're going through at work or at home or at the doctor's office. The Lord knows. Your affliction is not a mystery to him. So take comfort in that. Take comfort in not only that the Lord has designed this affliction, he has designed the suffering for your good, for his glory, for your conformity to Christ, but also that the Lord knows about your affliction 
And then thirdly, the Lord draws near. The Lord draws near. Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. It often is the case that the Lord uses great affliction to break us and to bring us low in order that then he can draw near to us because as long as we are prideful, as long as we are resistant to his work in our lives, the things which he has designed for us cannot be accomplished. Number three, the Lord draws near. Number four, the Lord heals. The Lord himself will wipe away every tear. And I heard in Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. The Lord heals. On our slides, I put the lyrics to a few different songs. And I think I'd like to read some of the words from one of them that we've never done here. So we've got what? We've done I Ask the Lord maybe twice. We've done Be Still My Soul maybe five times. A Mighty Fortress a couple times. But this other one is Thy Way Not Mine, O Lord by Horatius Bonner. It goes like this. Thy way not mine, O Lord, however dark it be. Lead me by thine own hand, choose out the path for me. Smooth let it be, or rough, it will be still the best. Winding or straight, it leads right onward to thy rest. I dare not choose my lot, I would not if I might. Choose thou for me, my God, so I shall walk aright. Take thou my cup, and it with joy or sorrow fill. As best to thee may seem, choose thou my good and ill. Choose thou for me, my friends, my sickness or my health. Choose thou my cares for me, my poverty or wealth. The kingdom that I seek is thine, so let the, so let the way that leads to it be thine, else I might surely stray. Not mine, not mine, the choice in things of great or small. Be thou my guide, my strength, my wisdom, and my all. Now, in conclusion, I'd like to just briefly run through some recommended resources. If you have your app, please look at your app and go back to the homepage and scroll down to the bottom and the bottom right corner hit resources. And then that will pull up a four point slide where you can hit suffering. And on this slide, you can find some wonderful resources. So at the top, well, the top of my list, I guess these are probably 
alphabetize or something. Um, so I, there's a book called Fear Not by Rand Hummel. Rand Hummel was my boss at one point. He was, a, uh, was is a camp director at the Wilds of New England, which is a Christian summer camp up in New Hampshire. Uh, this book is a small, uh, small booklet, similar in size to this, but a little smaller, and it is uh, Meditations to Overcome Fear, Worry, and Discouragement. Uh, secondly, Heaven by Randy Alcorn. This is the premier book on heaven from a biblically faithful perspective. So this is not like heavenly tourism books. This is like actually biblically oriented. Um, there's another book called If God is Good by Randy Alcorn. Another book, How Long, O Lord, by D.A. Carson. By the way, Carson is widely regarded as the, the number one conservative theologian in the world, um, like the top biblical scholar who believes the Bible is true. Um, next, Conflict and Triumph. Triumph by William Henry Green. This is the argument of the book of Job unfolded. Uh, Next, Seasons of Sorrow by Tim Challies. The Pain of Loss and Comfort of God. This book was written by a father whose college-age son died suddenly. Uh, This is a book called Ours by Eric Shoemaker, which is a book for fathers who lose a child due to miscarriage. So there's lots of books for comforting women, through miscarriage, but I believe this is the only one for fathers who lose a child to miscarriage. A Sheep Remembers by David Calhoun, Meditations on Psalm 23, written by a pastor on his deathbed. A Book of Comfort for Those in Sickness by P.B. Powers, which is a book filled with Bible verses for visiting the sick. So if you ever take up nursing home ministry or Visiting people who are dying, this is a a good book for that. The Crook in the Lot by Thomas Boston, What to Believe When Our Lot in Life is Not Health, Wealth, and Happiness. This is a Puritan paperback, so it's a small little book, about six bucks. Spurgeon's Sorrows, which I have right here with me, one of my very favorite books. Um, It is Realistic Hope for Those Who Suffer from Depression. Uh, Next, God in the Storm by Mac... Malefer is a short pastoral book for those in the midst of suffering. I think it's about five chapters. It's about the same size as this. Counsel with Confidence by Joel James, which is a book full of scripture organized according to topic. And then quick scripture reference for counseling. I don't think this is on the list because it's out of print. Nope, it's still there. Um, Which is a book, another book full of scripture organized according to topic. And then... Uh, Christ and Calamity by Harold Sinkbeel, Grace and Gratitude in the Darkest Valley, a wonderful little book full of mercy and encouragement. Um, let me just say, if you are suffering and you ask the wrong person for help, you will find yourself in a horrible meeting that you cannot get out of until the people you're talking to decide they're done. And those people will actually be like Job's friends. And in that type of scenario, which leads me to say bad counselors are worse than no counselors. Now, yes, the Bible says in the multitude of counselors there is safety. Yes, of course, that's true. But that is assuming these people are counselors. And not assuming they are just people who have opinions and they need someone to talk to and their barber was busy today. So instead of going and sitting in the, sitting in the, the barber shop and chatting up with the guy who just has to stand there and talk all day, they're going to bother you with their opinions about what you should or shouldn't do. Where was I going? Bad counseling is worse than no counseling, but 
There are some books for Christians in suffering that are actually helpful. And I believe that some of these are such books. Uh, This Christ and Calamity book, I I found it helpful and encouraging. Uh, There's another book, um, I forget the name of it, but my, my comment on it was that this is more helpful when you're in a hospital bed than when you're dealing with something that's preventable. Because some, some counseling type books are just all about like, hey, just, just deal with it. Just suck it up. Trust God. But not all circumstances are like that. Some circumstances are literally, well, you can, you can get the you know, fire extinguisher and just put out the fire. And now the fire's not blazing anymore. Instead of just saying, oh, I trust God. So um, Christ and Calamity, this last book, I, I find um, a merciful book of comfort. So that's what I have to say. Let's pray, and we'll be done. Father, I pray that you would help us, that you would encourage us. For those who are currently suffering, that you would give them grace and mercy. For those who are um, coming out of a time of suffering, I pray that you would restore them and rebuild them. And I pray for those who are about to go into a time of great suffering that they do not yet see, that you would strengthen them Give them a great ballast of assurance that their, their ship would not be um, capsized when they encounter the storms that are right around the corner that they do not yet know of. Lord, I pray that you would build us up in our, in, in our faith and our trust and confidence in you. Help us that we would not be people that are tossed back and forth by every wave and wind of doctrine or experience that comes across but that we would be fortified and trusting in you. Lord, I thank you that you promised to be with us. You've promised to heal us, to bring comfort to us. That You've promised that you are near to us as well. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.